Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everyone. This is episode number 30. Hard as it is to believe that this series has gone to 30 episodes, maybe even harder to believe that there, there's more coming up. Um, however, there, there's not more regular episodes coming um, next week. In fact, the, the schedule for the rest of the year is a little unknown at this point. I was hoping I might have some clarity to share when I release this episode, but I'm still working on some things. Um, the first thing I'll tell you is that uh, the next Friday would be the 18th. There will not be an episode that day. There, in fact, there will not be an episode next week. The week leading up to Christmas, I'm hoping to have something that'll be a little out of the ordinary. There's a couple of possibilities, a couple of directions I might go, and uh, just too much is unknown right now. I don't know if that's a teaser or if that's just annoying, but hopefully I will have something for you the week, early in the week leading up to Christmas. And between Christmas Day and New Year's Day, I do have a regular uh, format of an episode with a, with a conversation. I will probably release one a little earlier that week. Again, it won't be on a Friday because Friday is um, Christmas Day and New Year's Day this year. So we'll not be releasing an episode on those days. So the schedule will be just a little out of whack until we get to 2021 and January 8th comes around. And then we'll, we should be back to normal for a while. Before I introduce my guest for today, I would be amiss to all of my local listeners in the Winston-Salem, Greensboro, High Point area if I just didn't acknowledge the huge loss that we've had this week of Jim Basta. Jim Basta was, among many things, the conductor, the director, the founder of the Salem Community Orchestra, as well as Little Symphony of Forsyth County. And... Uh, he actually had quite an impressive resume. He was in the Marine Band. He played first French horn in that band, and he played for JFK's funeral. He also was an organist and played in the White House uh, for Richard Nixon. He has just quite a quite a lot of stories. But he was the type of person who was so humble. You 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 had to find out that stuff from a from a news article because he never talked about it. I mentioned him on the show because it was by playing in his orchestras, either French horn or piano, where I first met musicians in this area and several who I have was able to collaborate with in theater productions. And, uh, and a lot of them I've had on this podcast. So um, talking about Guy Kelpin, Ronald Ford, um, talking about Matthew Covington, I'm talking about Jennifer Alexandra Johnston, and there may be others that I played with and I just didn't know it at the time. Or they came in for just like a, a you know, a special occasions, which was the case with me. I was not a full-time member, but I would come in right before a concert if uh, they didn't have enough volunteers to fill out uh, all of the needs. Or in the case of Little Symphony, which was an orchestra that went around to all of the elementary schools uh, at least once a year. I would substitute uh, for the French horn chair. At any rate, Jim Basta, he leaves behind a legacy. Uh, 
truly served the community through music and again provided me a way of meeting so many musicians before I ever got involved in theater in this area. So my guest today is Taiki Azuma. Taiki Azuma plays all of the Reed books, all of the woodwinds, uh, but he comes at it from maybe a slightly different angle than some of my previous guests. Um, as a performer, Taiki identifies most as a saxophonist. Uh, however, he has very strong um, ambitious goals as far as being a teacher and by necessity has learned the other woodwinds along the way. And uh, he also has a passion for playing in the theater pit and this has served him well. Taiki's education experience in his credentials is so long um, that I really can't even touch on most of it. I'm just, at the moment as I'm recording, I'm glancing at his about me page from his Facebook profile. And I'll just read some of these. He's an adjunct professor of music at Lenore Rhine University. He's a part-time lecturer of music at UNC Pembroke. <clears throat> He's an adjunct lecturer of woodwinds and chamber music at Fayetteville State University. He has a degree from University of Miami. He has a degree from Florida Atlantic University. He is currently pursuing a doctoral of musical arts degree from UNC Greensboro um, as a saxophone performance major. He's completed all of his coursework and is now on to the comps and the dissertation that is remaining. So before we get on to the interview, in fairness, I just want to say that I spoke to Taiki off the record probably at least as much as we did on the record, and uh, some of it was just kind of catching up. Uh, there are other things that I wish I had recorded, though. One of the things that came up that he mentioned, and and I just think it's worth mentioning, I, I'm not going to be able to quote him directly because, again, I, I failed to record it, but he mentioned that if you are a pit musician, one of the mistakes that he comes across is this thought that if you've practiced your instrument and you're really good at what you do, uh, that gigs are just going to come to you, that you can just kind of sit and wait for uh, people to send you an email, send you a message, or to text or call you. But this is not the case. Very seldom is this the case. I can tell you that Taiki gets a lot of gigs in this area, and a good bit of it is because he plays his instruments really well. But a large portion of it is because he puts himself out there um, to make connections, to network, to let people know of what he does, and uh, to make himself available uh, to play for these gigs. So he does a lot of shows per year and understands the importance of networking. And this is true no matter what, where you are, and the pit is no exception. Um, you cannot be successful just because you're talented. There's a lot of talented people out there who are not working. And I'm talking about even when there's not a pandemic going on, they're not working because they're not promoting themselves. They, they are not being available for other people. So we talked about that. We also talked about what Taiki does when he's not uh, doing music. He's into long distance running with an ultimate goal of running a marathon. Again, all of that was talked about off the record. But we did discuss plenty of things on the record, and I'm going to share that conversation with you now. So here's my conversation with Taiki Azuma. 
So, Taiki, you have, I think, officially supplanted Guy Kelpin uh, as being the hardest to pin down for a time <laughs> to be on the show. <laughs> it took him, I think, uh, I think we had to go back and forth about six weeks and uh, to, to find a time. So you're you're right around there, maybe a little more than that. I'm not sure. Right, I feel terrible about that. Oh no! It just it wasn't my intention for that to be, and I'm so sorry it took so long. Oh no, that's fine. You, you're you're busy. You're not us. I mean, you're you've been busy professionally and personally, I believe. So you've got you've, you've kind of been a, a bi-state person lately, right? Yeah, now. there's been a lot going on with my, uh, my mother selling her house, and she's actually uh, with me currently right now. And is going to go back to Japan uh, to live out the rest of her life, uh, and uh, tomorrow actually. Okay, all right. Uh, you know, I've I've never found out really this part about you before. Our uh, were you born in the United States or were you born in Japan? I was born in Miami, Florida, and I'm the only one out of uh, my entire uh, extended family, I guess, that was born in the United States. Everyone else was born in Japan. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, Miami's quite a drive. I've only been there once. I'm from Florida, and maybe mm-hmm. this will give everybody an idea of just how big the state is from where I lived in Florida, because uh, Florida Marlins got a baseball team. People... Yes. Uh, I, well, I continue to pull for the Atlanta Braves, and people are like, "Well, why why won't you pull for the Florida Marlins? They're in the state of Florida." It's like, mm-hmm. well, so perspective. Atlanta was two hundred eighty five miles away from my part of Florida, which is the western part of the Panhandle. Mm-hmm. Um, Miami's about six hundred. Uh, I think it's at least six hundred miles from where I live. Maybe six hundred fifty. Yeah. And you know, just for perspective, from the area of North Carolina we live. Six. If you travel over 600 miles, you'll get on the other side of New York. I think you'll get in Connecticut. Uh, if you go oh, south, wow. you'll get halfway down Florida. It's like you'll get, mm-hmm. I think you'll get probably to at least Disney World, maybe beyond that, maybe mm-hmm. kind of into the, uh, I don't know, I don't think it'll make it quite to Palm Beach. There's a whole section of Florida I've never seen. Like I've never seen between Fort Lauderdale and mm-hmm. Daytona on the Atlantic side. I was like, that's a big chunk. And, um, you know, it's like, I've never seen Lake Okeechobee, but I've done Mm -hmm. the entire Gulf coast from Pensacola to Key West (laughs) pretty much. Mm -hmm. And I've done the Everglades and, and, uh, and of course I 10, I know really well, 75, know really well, but, (laughs) but But not so much 95. Yeah. A huge, huge state. I 95 terrifies me. It's like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I think people think, in Florida, that the interstate name, the interstate number is the speed limit. <laughs> <laughs> and You're not uh, wrong. Yeah. So one question that came up, uh, you know, we recorded these ex- episodes in advance. I just released the episode with Valerie Mays today. Mm-hmm. And uh, she pointed out something that I thought was very timely, especially since I'm going to be interviewing you today. It seems like there's a disproportionate, on the positive side... <laughs> Amount of people in this area for the population that are uh, reed doublers, they're able to play a variety of reed instruments. I mean, she said that coming from Chicago, it surprised her just how many people in this area could not just play, you know, the flute, the clarinet, oboe or whatever, but play, play them well. You know, it wasn't just like, yeah, you can play three in- three or four or five families of instruments and eh not really good on any of them, but you're one of several in this area. So what do you think is, what are, what are the factors that cause the 
Piedmont Triad of North Carolina have so many good reed doublers? I think the largest part has to do with um, the institution, the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, being one of the center uh, universities in this area. And it's the uh, only doctoral degree granting um, institution in terms of performance and instrumental studies. So with that, a lot of students come to this institution uh, to pursue their master's. Some go on to the doctorate or just come for their doctorate. And many end up settling in this area. So some of the people they've interviewed in the past, like Brian Blauk has been, uh, he completed his master's, de- uh, sorry, bachelor's degree at the UNCG. And a lot of those uh, other people they've interviewed before have completed their degrees in uh, uh, North Carolina at uh, Greensboro. And many of us have come to call this area uh, a home and just build out from there. And I think that's what has builds a lot of connections between a lot of the people here. This institution has been pulling all of us together and has, for me, what's been essentially tying all of us together as well. It's There's some type of bond through that as well. Uh, already. And then all of us have been supportive of each other, helping out each other. And it's it's really been a really nurturing environment for that type of uh, instrumental pursuit and work. Right. So let's just list, what are the instruments that you play professionally? And do you rank them in an order of most comfort, most comfort with them to least comfortable? <laughs> My primary instrument is saxophone, so I think that's going to be the most comfortable. But it's kind of interesting because lately, as of late at least, I would pick up my other instruments and uh, sometimes it'd sound great, sometimes it wouldn't sound great. And you just wonder, I wonder what my next instrument is. And you kind of get lost in that mix. Uh, in terms of a musical theater, I've performed on all the saxophones, oboe English horn, all the flutes, all the clarinets. I haven't done bassoon yet. I haven't had the opportunity to do bassoon, um, but that's a recent addition to the lineup of the woodwind instruments that I have. So, and I don't really think uh, try to think about in terms of a ranking. Uh, there is an un- uncomfortable ranking, which leads with bassoon to start with. But in terms of proficiency, uh, I've I've had this mindset for a long time of trying to treat everything like a primary instrument and not so much a doubling instrument. So I try to stay away from this is my primary instrument. So everything else can be below that because eventually you want to try to get everything very familiar and very versed in performing all these instruments. Right. Uh, yeah. I think one of the more memorable quotes I've had uh, in all the podcast episodes from Ronald Ford so far, it's like the, the primary instrument is the one I'm being paid to play at the moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's Yeah. I relate so much. Yeah. Um, Oh, by the way, just interjecting, I see the Hurricanes uh, little poster on the wall. Did, are you, did you go to Miami, or did you grow up a Miami Hurricanes fan? I did go to the University of Miami. Okay. Yeah, I, so that's where I got my bachelor's degree. I briefly considered that, uh, you know, growing mm-hmm. up in Florida. Uh, right before I finally settled on music composition as a major, I was consider- considering audio engineering. And, um, you know, I wanted to stay in state. And I think Miami at the time was the only place that I could go <laughs> to get that uh, done. But uh, even though I went to pretty expensive at the time university with Jet in Jacksonville, I think Miami was more expensive <laughs> at the time. At least, Miami was yeah. very expensive as a private institution. Yeah. 
So how did you get into music? What was your, so was saxophone your first instrument? Did you, or did you have like a piano phase or anything before that? No, music was completely new to me in middle school. And uh, the only reason I chose saxophone is because uh, my dad owned a restaurant, uh, a Japanese restaurant, and the music that he played was either guitar music or Kenny G music. Mm. So that was one of the instruments that obviously I, I could um, identify easily amongst the mix and name someone that I, I've heard of or um, listened to. So that's that's just been ingrained in my brain uh, when we were going up to sixth grade and then being able to choose an instrument to, uh, to pick up. And, you know, they get in people, uh, I guess these uh, music educators or uh, music store employees to fit you on every single instrument. And when I tested on saxophone, I think I had straight twos and threes, and that was it, out of five. Mm-hmm. Um, so they tried to put me on other instruments, and I had straight threes on tubas, but it was a little bit better than saxophone. And then I tried French horn and couldn't get a single sound out, so I had straight ones on that. Mm, nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They said, maybe you could do really well on tuba. And I was just really sticking stubborn on sticking it through with saxophone. So that's how I ended up with that instrument. And just went through it through middle school and high school. And uh, for college, I went to the University of Miami. Uh, but my major, uh, my intention was to do uh, pre-medicine. Mm-hmm. But I was told there was a, a way I could do both of them, which was uh, pre-med and music. So I did a double major in both of those fields. Okay. So that's how I ended up with music in the collegiate setting. And um, after that, I did a bunch of... Uh, <laughs> Long winded pass and then finally arrived at where I am. Nice. Um, so, so now as far as like saxophones, uh, you know, I mean, it's really a family of instruments. So, uh, mm-hmm. I, I assume like everybody, you probably started with alto. And did you do tenor and baritone while you were in high school? While I was in, uh, well, during middle school, I, uh, I was able to play tenor in the jazz band, uh, just based on need for it. Um, in seventh grade, there were some students that started on tenor saxophone that the band director allowed that they had their, uh, hand-me-downs from their father or grandfather. Um, but in terms of playing all the saxophone, yeah, I got through playing all of them, middle school and high school, uh, in multiple settings, soprano saxophone, usually with saxophone quartet or certain pieces in band, baritone saxophone. For a brief period, I played it in a jazz band in high school and tenor saxophone here and there uh, during middle school and high school. So, yeah, as a saxophonist, you have to be comfortable and familiar with all of them. And I've been fortunate to be able to play all of them in some type of uh, high school or middle school setting. When did you pick up uh, the other instruments of the Woodwind family? The... My sister was uh, a flute player. She's a year younger than me, and she pursued. Uh, we went to the same middle school in high school, obviously. But uh, when she upgraded her flute, I think sometime in her seventh grade or eighth grade year, she just had her old student flute lying around, and I just decided to uh, fiddle around with it. She was taking lessons, and I wasn't, so I would sometimes ask her, like, "What did you learn in your lessons? What did uh, your teacher tell you?" And the other part was uh, the band music at during like late middle school, early high school level, it's usually not such a fun part for the saxophone. We're usually doubling the French horns with the upbeats or doing some type of long tones, whereas the flute part usually had a lot of the melodic parts. So I usually uh, would 
borrow my sister's uh, flute music and band because we would sometimes have the same music being in the same band and just try playing it around, trying to play the part that I wish I had instead of some of these longer notes that I had on the saxophone. And that's what started me with uh, the flute portion of it. For oboe, uh, we went, our high school band got invited to play at the Bands of America uh, National Honor Band Festival. And there was one piece that were performed uh, in Evening Stillness by Joseph Schwantner. And that one had no sax, uh, no saxon parts, but it had three oboe parts and English horn part. But in our high school band, we only had three oboe players. So they needed someone else to cover a third oboe part. So I ended up sticking with that one as well and picked it up two months before and just did my best that I could. Luckily, we had really stellar oboe players in the high school band. One of them made a read for me. One of them, I borrowed their oboe for the a concert. Clarinet uh, was another interesting story. Uh, in senior year of high school, we had to take all these electives, PE, health, on um, computers. And I thought it was kind of redundant to have to take computers when we're all using computers. Mm-hmm. So uh, orchestra, the symphony orchestra they had, was meeting at the same time as computers was meeting. And I asked if there's a way I could test out of computers. And they said, it's a very hard exam. Most people fail it. You could, though. And so I studied, I think, for two weeks straight, borrowing all the textbooks I could from the library about Excel, Outlook, and uh, usage that would be on the exam. And luckily, I was able to pass it. So at that point, my senior year, I joined the symphony orchestra of my uh, high school and played a second clarinet in there. And the first piece that we had to play was... uh, uh, Polovets and Dances, mm-hmm. yep. which it's, uh, and for, for someone having just picked up clarinet, that's just a ridiculously hard part, especially the second clarinet part that keeps going back and forth over the break. So uh, the direct, the conductor of the orchestra was just laughing at me while I was struggling through these 16th note runs going up and down these areas mm-hmm. and just nodding. I understand he was a saxophonist also that doubled on clarinet. Right. So yeah, he was, he was very supportive during that. But uh, that's how clarinet became added to that part as well. Right. Um, I guess I didn't talk about involvement too much, but aside from band music, Mm -hmm. another thing I was really jealous of was all the chamber music that other instruments had because saxons were out in their own world with saxon quartet. But there was so much more traditional repertoire, a lot of great repertoire on these other woodwind instruments. So I formed a woodwind quintet with a few of my friends myself during high school and we also decided to do solo and ensemble where I was playing flute and then uh, played for a few years in that uh, setting as well to try to really uh, play through all these different types of repertoires that I otherwise wouldn't be able to as a solo saxophonist. Right. Um, you know, even some of the colleges that that want you to specialize more, I feel like... Th- Everywhere I've been, that they do encourage saxophone players to pick up clarinet. So that's kind of a seems like that's the easiest to switch to. In that you you know your embouchure is not changing a whole lot. That's one thing that I think that would be for, for someone who gets really used to one specific type of woodwind instrument. I would think that would be the biggest challenge because mm-hmm. flute, oboe, and clarinet really are nothing alike <laughs> in terms mm-hmm. of how you produce the sound. Um, as a brass player, clarinet drove me crazy 
because you have to avoid pressure. It's like you got to find, you got to put some pressure to get the sound, but any more than that, that's when the squeaks happen. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I, I think it was, I was lucky to not get any squeaks, you know, mm-hmm. maybe the last couple of weeks I, I avoided <laughs> squeaks a few times, but it was very difficult. Whereas when I got to the oboe, uh, and especially mm-hmm. the oboe and the bassoon, they just felt so comfortable as a brass player. It's like because mm-hmm. you can put, you you can use that lip pressure now, and mm-hmm. then flute just made no sense, you know, until <laughs> until I finally stopped wanting to pass out after uh, the first two weeks. But uh, mm-hmm. because you're not you're you're just blowing the air over the hole. So uh, was that uh, was that a challenge for you adjusting uh, what your mouth has to do? Now, at the time when you, I guess when you pick it up as a middle school or high schooler, you don't really think about too much of uh, why does it feel uncomfortable. You just kind of go for it. So, I mean, I was breathing a lot when I was playing flute, losing a lot of air, partially because I was overblowing. As right. a saxophone player, you tend to use way more air on when you go to flute uh, because flute players are very efficient with their air, the better they get. And I was nowhere near that level uh, at the time. So I, I was panting a lot. I was passing out a lot. Obviously, having to take breaks every 20, 30 minutes to make sure that your oxygen comes back right. and everything. But yeah, uh, doubles, uh, I had a very, I have a very different perspective right now than I did, than did before. But when I stopped to think about it, I probably could have practiced a lot more efficiently and probably could have followed a lot more pedagogical resources at the time. Uh, YouTube wasn't much of a thing when I was uh, in a high school, so we couldn't really look up videos uh, and find resources for that. So it was really pulling resources from your friends or immediate band directors and teachers that you meet, but which was really limited in that sense. So just going from one instrument to another was a really tough uh, thing to do for me at that time because I wasn't really thinking about what are the differences that you have to pull off. Why is this bad sound or squeak happening? You just hope that um, over time it'll fix itself as you get used to it rather than thinking about what's causing the issues. Right. Okay. So, so how did you get started in theater? What was your first show and how old were you? Uh, my first show that I played, I think was like a lot of other people. It was in high school with the theater department, with, uh, with the music department collaborating with the theater department. And that first show was um, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Mm-hmm. On it, but when I, I was a freshman at the time, and I wasn't doubling that much at that time, so right. all I did was uh, play the saxophone parts that you see a lot out of other high schools, where they divided the books amongst the students that they have within the band program. And I think the saxophone part probably was only played maybe 15 percent of the entire show. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of time just playing, well, just sitting back and not playing, watching my friends play and watching what's going on the stage, which is probably one of the few times where as a pit player, you get to just, you just see what's going on on the stage. Cause most of the time, if you are doubling and actually playing the entire show, your attention is on the book itself. And it was just really fascinating to see so much uh, choreography between the acting on stage and what's happening with the music, the attentiveness of the conductor and what they're looking for and how everything comes together. So I was, both an act, uh, performer in that sense, but also a spectator that allowed me to really absorb all those um, elements. And funny enough, the first show I played after graduating college was funny. Uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum again. 
Okay. That time I did double. Uh, now, by the way, just back backing track, you know, you, you talked about, uh, you got into saxophone. Kenny G was one of the names you recognize. Mm-hmm. You know, the one show that we've, we've done, I, I, I know that you substituted, um, for Beauty and the Beast, but the one mm-hmm. show that you've actually played performances of, that, uh, was uh, Man of La Mancha, you know, just yes. a couple of years ago. Did you know the small world connection with that? The woman who plays Aldonza is, uh, Kenny G's sister-in-law. No way. <laughs> yeah. Christine Gorlick is her name. <laughs> so Brian's, yeah, I remember her name. Yep. Yep. It's pretty, 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 pretty interesting. So it's like, uh, and her, and her husband was, was very complimentary of the whole show. So it's like, mm-hmm. Ken, Kenny G's brother likes her. <laughs> likes her. Really, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Oh, and for uh, me, it was a small world because the first girl that I dated, uh, in high school was a saxophonist. And she was a big Kenny G fan. And it's like, I'd never heard of Kenny G till she introduced him to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and so it's kind of funny. So for, uh, that, that relationship ended badly. Mm-hmm. And so did, uh, so I associated Kenny G with her and it took uh, years okay. before I even wanted to hear that name again. Mm-hmm. But, you know, over time you're like, okay, well, it's not Kenny G's fault that <laughs> that relationship mm-hmm. didn't work mm-hmm. out. <laughs> So one of the things that I've discovered with this podcast is the challenge of all the people I know who are woodwind doublers. So I've already had quite a few of them on. There's several that I that I haven't had on yet, and it's been one of those cases of like, you know I want to be careful I don't like stack the podcast too much with that. Uh, so you know, in talking to you in advance, I was like, well, what can you talk about that the others haven't, and. I think you've gotten quite a bit more into the academic side in terms of your profession. So uh, let's talk about about that. So um, how did you get into education as a career, and uh, where do you see that path taking you in the com- upcoming years? Um, I, doubling was uh, more of a, an academic thing for me and something I pursued just because I like the repertoire of each of the instruments independently. So it wasn't theater music that pulled me into doubling, but it was more so the independent study of each of these instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of reflect, I took lessons on all these uh, instruments throughout my time, uh, through high school, college, all the colleges rather on it, and whether it be in one semester, two or three or four semesters time. And the academics, I, uh, academia, college teaching is something that is, is a goal for myself, as well as a lot of other people that are pursuing their doctoral degree. And it was just natural to really think about what kinds of things do I personally have that other people might not necessarily have, which would, and in the Saxon world, a lot of the times that would be the doubling portion of it, especially if it goes beyond just flute and clarinet. So uh, for oboe, I decided to make that more of like a more primary instrument while I was at UNCG. And I believe I finished all the requirements to finish the post-baccalaureate certificate in oboe performance for it. So uh, with that on hand, I was just really fortunate to have a lot of friends and colleagues that were teaching at a lot of different institutions. And right now I teach at uh, three colleges and universities, all of them which were uh, referred to me by word of mouth either by friends or people that have known me or played with me as in some capacity. And uh, I teach 
all different things at all these colleges. One of them, I teach uh, all the woodwinds as well as chamber music and woodwind methods. Another one, I teach oboe only and uh, music appreciation and woodwind methods. And then the other university is primarily flute, but and then I have one oboe student there that I'm teaching. So they're all kind of different in terms of based on what uh, they were looking for at the time and what's nece- what's needed by the department. And it's just, it's been giving me, it's been very rewarding working with all these students of different types of instruments and uh, just racking up experience in pedagogy, performance, uh, and organization. And the, ultimately, I'm hoping that all of this will inform a s- singular position where all of this can come together at a tenure track, a universe, a tenure track position at a university. But right now I'm just having fun with it and just really um, enjoying every moment I have with each of the students at every single institution. Right. And, um, and you've gotten some contracting experience out of that too, I believe, because I remember when we were doing Man of La Mancha, you were, you were rounding up people for, <laughs> uh, what, what is my, I, I want to say it was Oklahoma. Was that? Or, it was. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, was that, that was at one of your schools, right? That was uh, no Oklahoma was uh, a band director friend of mine uh, was uh, going to direct that show. He said this was going to be a big one. They want to hire every single book, so oh. he asked if I knew players that would be able to play the entire run of the show at the high school production. Okay, was it orchestration or the bandstration? The bandstration, yeah. yeah, strings on keyboard. Yeah, um, it's like that's a. Uh, I think that's one of the more famous quote unquote bandstration books out there. It's like, mm-hmm. I think Oklahoma is one of the first, but it's gotta, be, it's gotta be one of the most performed shows in high school theater. And so I think the Rogers and Hammerstein, the publishers just realized <laughs> we need, we need a version for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've gone to conferences and some other things. Uh, what has that been like for you? Uh, there's been multiple reasons for me to go to conferences. Um, one of them is uh, I work as an overseas rep for a next company that's based at Japan. And being the only one that lives outside of Japan, I'm usually the person that goes traveling around within the United States for clarinet and saxophone conferences on their behalf or overseas on, on their behalf as well in order to promote our company and uh, meet with our clients uh, and those are those would usually be the national conferences or the international conferences or even regional conferences for these instruments. Um, the other part uh, was that uh, for o- in particular for oboe, uh, the first time I ever performed in public on oboe was actually at the International Double Reed Symposium Masterclass mm-hmm. on it. And I just uh, just being a doubler and studying these instruments privately, you don't really get too many performance opportunities that are. Uh, beyond just musical theater. So I wanted to try to put my foot out, uh, put my foot in the door rather, in terms of trying to be more proficient, more of a primary mindset of some of these instruments. So I submitted my name uh, to see if I would be selected to play for the master class at IDRS. And luckily I was, and that became my uh, probably one of the scariest things I've ever done in my life, which is go to an international conference of a totally different instrument than you're used to and mm-hmm. perform for everyone that only plays that specific instrument. Right. And be prepared to be torn apart. Mm. It was really funny. Uh, the lady that was leading that masterclass, the first one I played at was um, Dr. Michelle Vigno. And uh, she teaches at uh, University of Tennessee in Memphis. And 
after I finished playing, she had told me, um, she looked up every single person online that was playing and she saw that it was a saxophonist and braced herself to uh, listen to something that would possibly be terrible. Because mm. <laughs> nice. usually saxophonists don't make really good doublers on oboe. Mm. Nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad she saved that bit for after I finished playing. Right. <laughs> nice. Well, I know you've gotten you've done a lot of shows in the past few years, so I assume mm-hmm. you've got at least one horror story from a show. Yeah. So um, it's it's not really direct contracting, but a lot of the times music directors um, or people that are hiring would ask if I know anyone else that could play. And this particular show, uh, I pulled in one of my friends mm-hmm. uh, and saying, hey, can you cover read blah, blah, blah. And I think there was um, four read books in there and mm-hmm. I was going to do read three and he was going to do read four. Um, the day before our first rehearsal, he pulled out Mm. and the music, obviously the music director wasn't happy. And I felt very responsible for this because I had no idea that was going to happen. So he said to no, don't worry about it. They'll go through with it. Uh, and with the rehearsal and see what happens. Uh, but, uh, I just, I felt so terrible that the night before, I think, uh, I spent, I did an all nighter just, con- uh, combining reads three and four together mm. just so that there'd be nothing missing for that first rehearsal. And it probably took me a good 10 hours to do that wow. collectively, <laughs> just putting all the parts together, making it fit nice and everything. And just making notes of what's going to be played here. What's missing. If I don't, if I play the other book and what parts I have to extract and, um, and yeah, we got to the first rehearsal and I had, this was the show Curtains, mm-hmm. and I had seven instruments with me between those two books. Um, and I just setting up everything and then having two stand, uh, two stands with two books and just jumping from one book to another mid-number uh, was just absolutely terrifying. Just because uh, not knowing how the music director or how other people react as well. Right. <laughs> but yeah, in the end, the music director said he thinks it sounds fine. It's going to work so that I should keep doing it. So that's what ended up happening for the show. Wow. <laughs> it's uh, along the same lines, but uh, at the same venue the following year, uh, mid tech run, I had uh, one of my uh, the keys on my flute snap off as well. And uh, it, which is usually doesn't happen, especially for such a high caliber instrument that I had. Um, so I, I just come, came to think that there's something cursed about that space because another thing that happened the following year after that, um, as everyone's using iPads and uh, technology to uh, read music off for to play the shows, uh, while I was playing a number, I, I got an airdrop notification. Mm. I, I guess someone had sent me a file. Um, I accepted it, but I didn't watch it yet. Um, so and then we got to intermission, and then I decided to open it, and it was just a video I had wished I had never seen. Hmm. And it's, but it was just again at that same space. One year it was the the person pulling out and me combining the books. One year it was a key off of a flute snapping off mid run, and the other year was the file I should have never accepted. And it only happened at that venue. Wow. <laughs> 
So, so was it like a virus on the file or something? Or uh, it, it was a, a video file that's just not really friendly to oh, you. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was. I learned my lesson. I turned off uh, uh, ex- accepting files from everyone on AirDrop. Right. Well, that probably reminds me. I should probably go through and just check my devices too. I got an iPad this year. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm and, pretty sure they didn't know they sent it to someone that was in the pit. They oh. were just probably looking through their phone and seeing like, who can I send a file to? But. Okay, nice. <laughs> um, so let's contrast that with, is there a fond memory from a show you'd like to share? For me, it's, uh, I'm not sure if this would really count, but uh, I, I'm i really fascinated by the aspect of pre-musicians coming on board. Mm-hmm. Really, because if you think about it, uh, the musicians are only there for maybe two rehearsals and then a tech and then the show, but the show's, the rehearsal process and everything, the blocking and everything is going on for weeks, even months. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, the fondest memory of a show happens to be the one that um, I helped out one of my friends who was music, uh, music directing a show, uh, Mamma Mia, at the uh, Little Theater. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, I asked if I could just go watch one of uh, the rehearsals with just the cast. And he said, actually, he could really use an AMD. Uh, because his wife's due for labor during the show. Right. So he wanted a safety net just in case. So I ended up, I said I I would be happy to, and I decided to go to all these rehearsals that they had, maybe one or two a week, um, six weeks before the opening night. And just seeing the cast, the synergy, what happens above that we don't get to see as pit musicians is was just really eye-opening to see all the work that they're pouring in, everything that they have to juggle through, and then what kinds of things that they're working on, and then the person-to-person bonds that they're able to create within each other, within the cast and within the staff, that we're that's kind of lacking between the pit musicians and the stage people, or pit musicians and cast members. So that's um, that might be one of the best uh, things that I have been able to encounter and see related to musical theater, the side that you don't get to see when you're just uh, a performing pit musician. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Um, sometimes I forget, you know, I've done, most of my shows have been as a music director, so to some degree or another, I get to know the cast. And, uh, and you know, quite often I'll, from each show, I'll, I'll make friends, you know, that will last past that show with one or two of them. And, um, but I've also, I've played for shows where I was just the keyboardist, and at least a couple of times it was for pits where you can't even see the stage. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I never even saw what the actors look like or what was going on on stage. So it's like, they're kind of, the, the actors are some other part of the production. And um, so, and I think a lot of people who I interview, you know, that's their regular occurrence unless they play mm-hmm. for a, a theater where you're kind of on stage and you're interacting with the actors more. But if you're down in a pit and, you know, the actors don't mm-hmm. come down there and you don't go up on stage, sometimes you miss that portion of it. And it's a very different dynamic, I think. And, and mm-hmm. before you get to the separation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. How has your time been spent during the pandemic? I assume you've been having a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff with your, with uh, your teaching and also, you know, your, your being a student as well. Um, but are there any special projects that have been going on? Right now, um, 
obviously it's really a different, a really interesting academic semester and academic year. A lot of events are you know, trying to restructure, reorganize to see if we could have some type of viable form, um, whether it be conferences or certain types of performance opportunities for it. Um, in terms of projects, I don't have really a specific project per se set aside. I've been doing a lot of um, arrangements and transcriptions for future performances that would hopefully resume. Uh, and then applying to certain conferences, we, uh, my read quintet uh, that I'm a member of, and that Ronald Ford that you interviewed is also a member of, um, we were accepted to play at Clarinet Fest over the summer next year, uh, which is one of the things that we'll be uh, working for and we'll be featuring some, uh, an instrument you don't really see, which would be the Oboe de Amor that Ronald happens to have, right. <laughs> which is also an interesting thing. Uh, but that's one of the performances that are in uh, the works for uh but project and turn solid projects right now, it's very hard to put together any type of solid piece when we're not sure what it'll look like in, in terms of roadmaps. When everything hit, uh, I think I had about seven shows that I was slated to performing canceled. And then right now everything's uh, in a reorganizing phase. I'm on, I've been listening in on uh, board meetings at one of the organizations that I play for as well. And it's just, really talking about what are we going to do several months from now? What can we do right now to stay afloat? So it's a lot of these restructuring things, restructuring ideas, and then uh, being afloat to really, to so that when performance opportunities or when things lighten up, everyone will be able to hit the road running, right? Um, so that we could go forward uh, really smoothly for it. So it's been pretty slow until the academic semester began, uh, like you mentioned, uh, for the colleges I teach at. And that's been going uh, really well for the most part. I did have some students that ended up catching COVID and had to quarantine. Mm. Uh, I had a student that had to quarantine twice. So a four week period on it. But for the most part, all the uh, all three of the schools were able to remain open. So I was teaching them kind of a face-to-face slash online where I, tr- I went uh, down to the college as much as I could. But then online for the uh, weeks I couldn't make it down there for it. So they've been doing uh, pretty well too, it seems, uh, seems like in terms of guidelines and uh, staying safe and staying afloat. So hopefully that'll carry on into next semester and that we have a better idea of what kinds of things we need to do. But, right. uh, not just at the collegiate setting, but across multiple organizations. Great. Um, so I know you're very active on social media. So uh, where can people where can people follow you if they'd like to uh, see more of what you're doing? I don't have a website, but uh, the only social media I really actively use is Instagram and Facebook. On it, my Instagram handles just TJ Azuma, and then uh, you could uh, Facebook. You could just find me at Taiki Azuma. I'm pretty sure I'm one of the only Taikis that'll come up if you're to type that up in the United States. Right. <laughs> On it. So most people usually don't have trouble finding it. Right. Uh, I mean, one thing I'll say to listeners is like if they follow you on social media, I think you're you're one of the few people that that I know personally that pretty regularly gives uh, snippets of the pit perspective during shows. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what your your kind of a highlight of what your part is as it's going on. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. So that's that that might be an interesting perspective for people to check out. All yeah, right. really, really, it's just a lot of fun uh, being involved with this because there's a lot of people you wouldn't meet unless you were doing the the pit perspective. And 
a, a lot of some of these people are people you only meet in these types of settings. So every single time you have a show together, it's like seeing friends again and just hanging out. So more than anything, it's just really uh, enjoyable to perform and see the other people and play with them and make music with them. Right. It's also interesting, kind of the different situations that we, we've had to to play under. It's like, uh, you know, I, I I didn't feel like we were overly tight for space of man of la mancha but i mean you mm -hmm. were like you know if you if you were the type that liked to lean back in your chair you, you might have gone for a, for a ride <laughs> off the stage off the yeah. platform so i forgot to warn brian about that when he came in later oh yeah um the the last show that i played indoors uh, from a pit perspective was a little shop of horrors and we were on a platform uh, that was probably three times the height of what we did for Man of La Mancha. It was, you know, oh, it was very high on the stage, and I was on the edge. So the very first thing I did was uh, get some tight rope and mm -hmm. tie it from the leg of my chair to the edge of the platform. So, like, the worst mm -hmm. thing was going to happen was my chair was going to hang <laughs> off the platform. But I had it pretty tight, so I didn't think it was going to move at all. But, uh, you know, I just wanted to make sure. And then... Um, one of the tech people in that theater, I think they saw it mm -hmm. and they built a little uh, riser, a little ledge, you know, a guard <laughs> to keep mm -hmm. keep the chair from going off the stage. <laughs> is this usually disclosed to you ahead of time or you just kind of get to the set and see, oh, this is where I'm going to play now? Uh, well, yeah. So the way it usually works is they'll more often than not tell you what they have in mind, but you don't really know the details of that until you get ready. Um, what I've always tried to do as music director is um, try to accept the most risk, you know, if there's something going on. So it's like if I can get people away from the edge, I will. Uh, sometimes you can't. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I try to, you know, make sure that if that I'm one of those that's on the edge, you know, if, if that's sensible for the pit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. since you played with Man of La Mancha with me, you got to be the only... Or, or not the only person I've interviewed, but one of the few people who has only played with me leading a drum set <laughs> or leading <laughs> from a drum set. <laughs> it's like, usually I do keyboard. That was the one time I led from a drum set because there was no keyboard yeah. book. And, uh, you know, and it wasn't until I saw a picture of what um, Justin Cowan. So his solution was, as far as I could tell in the pictures, was to not hire a bassist and play the bassist on the keyboard because you can do that with one hand mm -hmm. while you conduct. And, yep. um, whereas, you know, playing drum sets, one requires two hands, but it also requires mm -hmm. a certain bit of proficiency. And, uh, you know, I could not have done that if it was like a traditional drum set book, but I had taken percussion lessons, but that mm -hmm. was, uh, as soon as I saw that, I was like, why didn't I think <laughs> of that? But, you know, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to go try to find a real drummer at that point and then tell my mm -hmm. two bassists for the show, sorry, see you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's scary, though, too, even uh, especially because with the lighting effects that we had during that show for Triad Stage Production, uh, it would get really, really dark. So I remember um, when Justin was looking for which keys to press, sometimes he would really have to stare at where his fingers were because he couldn't see that well right. at times, too. And I think he was juggling bass and timpani on that uh, keyboard part. Yeah, I just remember you played both productions. How many shows of Man of La Mancha did you play in 2019? <laughs> uh, I, I only got to play those two productions, uh, one for you and one for Try to Stage, which happened to be going pretty much at the same time. 
Um, yeah, I was trying to figure out like how many total yeah. shows would that have been? Because <laughs> that was they did a so. Yeah, that was uh the triad stage one was forty two services, and I think I had to sub out thirteen of them. Wow. And so shows wise, that was I I did a few of the rehearsals, so I think I did twenty four shows at triad stage for those. Hmm. Wow. And then for you, I think I did four or five. Sounds sounds about right. <laughs> Yep. Okay. So you know that show pretty well now, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure I would say that anymore. It's been, a, it's, it seems like ages ago. Right. Right. Yeah. It's actually, that I just, uh, just brought back memories of that show. I think, uh, I have to check the schedule. I don't know if you're coming out, you're coming out one episode before or one, af- one episode after I talked to somebody who plays brass and does doublings and we were talking about how we had Mm -hmm. to have a french horn slash trumpet player for that arrangement and how tricky that was and that was actually Mm -hmm. something that he does and he was talking really we were talking about how much how good that show is especially for the french horns you know great it's a great french horn part yeah but like you said it's rare to find someone that does well in both of those instruments right and 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 we really it, it, it was a case of i think ended up getting trumpet players who were able to get by on French horn. You know, it's like, right. It's just not something that's called for that much. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm glad I was able to pin down a time when I could get you on the show. So it took Thanksgiving weekend, but you know, <laughs> that's how that goes. I hope this wasn't too inconvenient. For oh no. Stay in time. No, no, this was fine for me. So uh, yeah, thanks. You, thank you for being on the show. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me. And that wraps up episode number 30. This is the point in the episode where I would be telling you what's coming up next week. Again, there's nothing next week. There's nothing on Friday. Uh, but once we get to the week of the 21st, uh, probably on either the 21st or 22nd, there will be something uh, out of the ordinary. I think you'll enjoy it. I just can't really say for sure exactly what it will be. Uh, so that leads uh, to me reminding you, wherever you get your podcasts, please make sure you're subscribed to the show and win an episode becomes available, you'll be able to hear it first thing. And so that transitions really nicely to what I always say at the end. As always, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. And I always want to give a special thanks to Mark Perolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can find out more about the podcast or leave feedback through davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app and share with your friends. Thank you for listening.